Hello and welcome back to the BAC podcast and the dizzy heights of episode three, The Design. In this episode, we'll be looking back at the original inspiration behind the BAC mono and some of the stories that have helped to create its timeless shape, all from those who played major parts from the early sketch stages through to the final build. Alongside me, Stuart Newman, as always, are the Briggs Automotive Company co-founders, Neil and Ian Briggs. How are we doing, chaps? I'm good, mate. How are you? Very good. Neil, you good? <laughs> yeah, yeah, very good. Bit very too good. much sun, bit too much sun at the weekend again. But yeah, all good. <laughs> It's always a Monday morning that we're doing this as well. We need to do it on a Friday night or something and have a beer, I think. It'd be a bit more, be a bit more awake and look a bit better for the camera, but there you go. Anyway, let's get into it. So we know that you've both had this vision for a road-going vehicle that offers the ultimate driving experience, but how much attention did you pay to its design, you know, when this was first going through your brains? I guess one of, you know, what came first? Was it the form or the function? Well, it's definitely the function. It's uh, it was always the function, you know. The the, the first vision. Um, I, I don't know how Neil imagined driving it. There was a a corner at Hockenheim that I always imagined going into, and in my Lotus and stuff, it would understeer a bit, and the car always felt a little bit unsettled. And <clears throat> I just imagined how direct this single seater would feel. Um, I had an imagination of the car sitting in the pit lane at Ulton Park. And if I closed my eyes, I could feel how it would look, but I couldn't actually see. And that's, I know that sounds like a strange thing to say. <clears throat> I knew it would stand out as a, as a new product. It couldn't look old fashioned. It couldn't look a bit like this or a little bit like that. It couldn't look like a baby version of something or um, it needed to look, you know, it needed to look like this is a product or a product of the future. Um, so, so the way the car looked was always going to be influenced by the package there was no way it was going to look cool and, and, and compromise its package. Um, but uh, from the very beginning, uh, it had to, it had to look like a, a futuristic uh, project. And that's where the whole, you know, the Bjork video influence came in where this very obvious futuristic robot with, which was obviously a machine, but had very thin uh, organic kind of panels over it, but there was never any pretense to pretend it was actually a fake human being. So, um that was that was that was very strong in the early days that that influence you know for me it was um obviously the the architectural layout of the car was was defined uh and it was never actually people always say you know uh, how much time did you spend looking at different concepts it was never ever ever a two-seat or a tandem or, or anything more than the obvious single seat um architectural layout and i think as we've touched upon previously um when you start doing some some basic layouts of saying, you know, that the driver's feet won't protrude past the front axle center line, which is the responsible thing to do. Um, and you sit the mannequin in there and then you put the engine in, which, which for us was always going to be a four cylinder inline four engine, you know, in terms of its efficiency and output and weight. Um, it's, it's one of the best that's out there. And then of course you put the bell housing and the gearbox on there and, and you've pretty much got your, your wheelbase was, was pretty much set. And so from that point on, really, for me, I was in quite uncharted waters, really. My, my career um, to date, I'd worked with, with many, uh, many, many good um, vehicle designers and, and, and exterior and interior designers. Uh, and for me, I was, it was kind of, yeah, as I say, new ground in terms of the process um, and it was great, really, that in many ways that Ian and, and Murray, uh, fresh out of university, were kind of separated in a way, um, from me at least, because 
every Friday night, I used to get these little kind of influence sketches and, and, and what we call mood board, which I'm sure Ian will, will talk about, which was to kind of say, look, you know, what are the things that are appealing to us? And, you know, famously on, on, on episode uh, two of series 20 of Top Gear, Jeremy Clarkson talks about, you know, designers being influenced by bats and jet fighters and all these things. And as I say, Ian will expand on it, you know, but th they were the things and for me, as I say, again, being an engineer, it was quite, it was, it was great to see behind the curtain, really, what the process is of, you know, different mood boards, different directions, this kind of diverse, convergent approach. Um, and all the time, of course, I had my opinions uh, of, of, of what I thought was was cool. But really, it was, you know, it was down to Ian and, and Ian and his team, really, to come up with stuff I was more critiquing from the size and just, just chipping in with, with my opinions as and when. Yeah, I think... It you know, the, the as Neil mentioned, the mood, the mood boards. Um, it's it's a it's a tool that designers use to set the kind of tone for for the aesthetic treatment of a car. And um, you know, historically, ninety nine percent of car design they talk about volume. So you know, you might have a, what they call a three box saloon. So it's a, there's a box at the front where the engine sits. There's a box <clears throat> in the middle, excuse me, um, where the passengers sit, and then there's a box at the rear for the luggage. <clears throat> And then people talk about the mass at the rear because it's a mid-engine or they talk about you know, the, the front haunches, but they're always talking about volumes. And and for, for me and for us, it was important that this car being such a lightweight new product that it, that it had a different aesthetic to that. Um, we had to have bodywork out to the wheels because we had to, by law, you know, cover the wheels. But I was very keen that the actual volume of the car, that the that the observer, that anyone looking at the car, it was always very clear that it's really only as big as a person, an engine and a gearbox. And so from every angle, I wanted it to be wanted it to be clear that in the areas where we're just trying to cover something that you could see through. So very early on, you know, we, we you know, rear three quarter views wanted to be able to see between the, the wheel and, and the cockpit and it not appear you know, uh, voluminous. Uh, didn't want it to seem like it could have been a two-seater, but they've just unnecessarily restricted it to being a one-seater. Once it says no, it's definitely a, a, a very focused, narrow single-seater, and everything else is about aerodynamics, about you know meeting regulations. The other thing was um, at the time I had um, I had I had my motorbike, my MV Augusta, and, and what I loved about bikes at the time, you know, the front was all enclosed. When you looked from the front, all you saw was this smooth bodywork. But if you went around the rear, you saw into the bodywork. You saw the the engine. You saw the sprocket. You saw the the, the chain, the rear suspension, you know, and even the bodywork. Unlike you would on a car, a car would not historically be done in a way that um, it looked like a volume. But the, the bike made no pretense of that. It was very thin. It was like one or two millimeters thick, and and your eye could see that when you look from the rear. This is just a this is just a cowling to help this machine get through the air. And and, and once the air is disturbed by the ride by the, by the rest of the bike, there's not much point in putting aerodynamic treatments around the, the, the rear wheel and the rear suspension. So that was also very much the influence, this, this idea that we'd have this teardrop shape, that this plan view where we'd, we'd cover the front and then we'd narrow to the rear. This is a, you know, um, a naturally very aesthetic shape. And so you start to create this vision a little bit and then you look for images that kind of give you the feeling. I said, you know, there was a time when I could close my eyes and I could imagine the product. I could imagine the feeling I'd have from seeing the product, but I didn't actually, I couldn't actually say, oh, this is rounded there and this is straight and there's a tight line there. You couldn't actually see it, but you could feel it. And so you start to find products that give you that feeling and they're not other cars and they're not fighter jets and all the rest of it. Um, it was insects. Um, it was it was it was the the Bjork robot. It was um, 
pieces of equipment, pieces of equipment where you could see the machine, but where you also saw, you know, coverings and things. So they're on the wall and, and, and everyone's sketching and coming up with ideas and, and that helps to influence you. That's why it's called a mood ball. That helps to influence you. It's almost like a checklist because when you do a design project, you know, it might take a year, 18 months from the point you start until the point which you, you know, you stand back and say, okay, that's, 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 the, that's, that's our design proposal. And it's easy, very slowly to go off track. And so these mood boards in your brief, they're the things that keep you on track. They're the things you keep referring back to and say, that was the feeling we were after. And I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but, you know, eventually we had all of our friends and colleagues come around and Neil and I presented to them and said, you know what we set out to achieve, you know, and here's, here's some, here's some renderings, you know, do you feel like we've, we've done it because you do need that kind of opinion from outside sometimes. But anyway, that's, that, that was the point of mood boards. Um, and then, um, you know, Neil and, and Joel at the time had done all of the package. And like Neil said, the package just was the, the package just is the package. It just, it, there's only one way that makes sense. It's the best package. It's the, this the package every single formula car uses. Um, and what we did then was, as we took the hard points, we effectively turned that package into a solid block. And then you make that as a physical block at a quarter scale. And that became the, the, what we call the book for our clay model. And so you could cover it in clay. There's a famous video, which I'll explain about later, but, um, you know, you, you cover it in clay and then you start, you, you start trying to get the feeling that you've got in your sketches. So you've got this design direction that's come from your mood boards. You've created your sketches. You've said, now that's it. Of course, you can kind of lie to yourself when you're sketching because you can sketch a rear view and a front view and they're not necessarily what you would see of the same form. So that's the point to go into 3D to start to say, okay, this is... Um, this is how this product's um, going to look, how this form language is going to work. So you start to scrape away at the clay and start to make shapes. And of course, if at any point you touch the you touch the hard book in the center, in the core, you know, I can't go any further. That's the chassis. You know, there's a there's a person inside there. I can't I can't use that space. So um, sorry for the long answer, but that's uh, that's how you go from mood boards to clay models. Honestly, the the nerdier the better, as, as we were saying. <laughs> And I know you guys like you raced a lot in your day, and like I know you had a pair of Lotus Elises as well that you thrashed around Germany or, or wherever you were. You know, are there any cars that you did draw some sort of inspiration from when it came to creating the look, or was it just we're learning from these and, and, and enhancing them in a way? From from my side, not the look, no, no. Um, I mean, you know, a road going in the nineties when Neil and I first started talking about it, there was this notion of it being kind of a road legal Formula Ford. Um, but uh, and again, they're very minimalist in their bodywork. Um, that you know, there's a lot of the mechanical elements are on show, so that might have been some kind of influence. Um, the, the way that formula cars cover their roll structure and and allow air into the engine, it's a sensible, natural thing to do. You you've got to have clearance to the to the driver's head in the case of a accident, and um, and that's a natural place to, to to bring air into the engine. So there were some kind of influences that way from uh from the motorsport side but there wasn't really anything uh from from the car side no not really i think that the motorbike analogy is a very good one um you know when people see a motorbike uh for example uh, a big harley davidson uh they think of people cruising from from east to west coast in the us and then it's all about cruising and relaxing and and and, and, and having that feeling uh, when people see a, a Honda Goldwing, you know, um, you know, there's two people sat on there, microphones, panniers, and that's all about cruising across Europe and going on a big, a big journey. But when you see uh, a sports bike, for example, 
or race replica motorbike, you instantly know that that bike is all about performance. Uh, it's all about the rider and the machine and the environment. And that's it. No one says, where's his girlfriend going to sit? No one says, where's the tent going to go for the weekend away? It's here's this bike. It's designed all about, you know, for riding and for, for enjoyment. And so for me, the, on a very high flight level, the car had to say that uh, when people saw it. And without the narrative that we'd been in the luxurious position to give our friends and and, and people within the industry whose, whose opinions that we valued, uh, to be able to stand by the car and let it let it speak for itself. That was really important. And um, as I say, you know, previously we'd, we'd, we'd been able to, to stand by the clay or the images and talk about what the car was, what the design brief was, what the car was supposed to deliver. But the ultimate, you know, um, check sheet for that is when you, you know, when we took the, the, the cover off in episode one, we spoke about the launch at the Retro Classic show in Stuttgart. And, you know, 200 journalists, you know, swamped around the car. We physically couldn't explain it to all of them. Um, you know, the car had to, had to stand on its own two feet and it had to deliver. Um, and clearly everybody got it, understood it. And so for me, it's the highest accolade, really, in terms of what we set out to do, the brief, what the car is all about and, and the execution by, by Ian and the guys. I think there's one, one additional point. That, that's, Neil's exactly right what he says there. Um, there was one extra element as well. And I remember saying this to the guys. I said, <clears throat> if I sit at the traffic lights on my MBA Augusta with my black visor, people can't see where I'm looking. But even kids, even people who don't know anything about bikes, they also know that's a high quality product. They know that that isn't a bike he made himself. That isn't a bike. That isn't a cheap motorbike. That's clearly a very expensive, very well engineered bike. And that was um, important for Neil and I as well. That the level of sophistication in the in the form language, in the in the in the fit and finish of the product, the engineering that was on show, it all said exactly the same message. Because mono is not just about going fast. If you want to, if you just want to go fast, you know, you could go and buy a used formula car and just go fast. It's about owning something of beauty as well, owning something that's sophisticated, high quality same way you might want a really nice watch you don't go 100 meters underwater with it you know just it's nice that it can and it's it's a testimony to, to its level of engineering but that's not really what it's about it's uh, we wanted something that really appealed to to people like ourselves i mean that was that's probably you know a big part of the success i would say is because neil and i designed exactly what we wanted um and and thankfully there are other people out there who think like neil and i in a and, nutshell. <laughs> and in addition to that, you know, the, 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 the mood boards, you know, the mood boards and the sketches and then the, the clay model development, that's part of an execution process. And, and, and in parallel, you're also setting yourselves targets for performance and where we would predict, position the product in terms of, uh, terms of costs uh, and performance. But in addition to that, you start setting yourself other targets. And Ian mentioned build quality. So that's gaps, flushnesses, you know, how the car fits together um, and, and, and Ducati motorcycles and, and, and MV Augustas, like Ian said, um, yes, they're fast. Yes, they're very engaging, um, but they're beautifully, beautifully made and with incredible processes. Um, and I think what, you know, testimony to us is that, you know, we never rest on our laurels with that and everyone in the business is aligned to it. Um, you know, we do a cross-functional um, um sign off and quality audit of not just build people and not just engineers we have other people in the business who are part of that and i think that's really really important um to stay to stay grounded with what we're trying to achieve and then ultimately are uh, moving to new te technological areas of how we can change the benchmark and change the raise the bar not just 
um, look to aspire to, to what other manufacturers are doing and other products are doing is that we're actually changing the, you know, changing and raising the bar and setting new references for, for technology on the car. I think a, a compliment that is, gets paid a hell of a lot to us is, you know, people cannot believe that, you know, you first sketched this back in 2007, I want to say 2008, that kind of time. Uh, we started September 2007. I, I, I would I would say probably um, most of 2007 was benchmarking, uh, mood boards, kind of getting a feel for it. I, I guess right at the end of the year, we did get some some initial sketches. So, yeah, let's say end of 2007. Certainly the clay model was finished by the end of summer 2008. I mean, you'd, you'd be forgiven for looking at Mono and saying, OK, that was created in 2021. You know, did you really want to have this timeless design that stood the test of time and just, you know, would always look that way? Was that in your head? Well, I, I mean, um, I, I've got to say, um, our colleagues in the in the big car companies uh, have a much tougher job. You know, if you've got a if you've got to redesign the C class every six or seven years, or the three series BMW, I mean, there's only so much you can do. You know, we, you know, effectively, what they're doing is they're taking the Mona Lisa and they're trying to make her every time a little bit more attractive or a little, and that's a tough thing to do, of course. And of, and, and and the danger is is that you end up doing things that are fashionable, or, or inevitably you end up doing things that are fashionable. With Mono, we were setting a complete new aesthetic. We were setting an aesthetic that no one had seen before, and so in that respect, it was easier for us. Um, we just created something that, that wasn't really based on fashion. It was the first time, in my opinion, a car had so much what we call negative space. So shapes and forms and, and language that was created by where, where there was no bodywork rather than the shape of the bodywork. Um, <clears throat> and so um, I think it was easier for us in that respect to create something new. And, and because it, because it did start something new, it's it's less fashionable and and, and a bit more timeless. Um, we'll see perhaps after two or three more iterations of the mono form language whether whether it does stand the test of time. I think I think the very fact that you know um, you know we still produce the original car today, um, and it's um, you know the new color schemes that are coming through from from the various different seasons that we're doing now and. Uh, and of course, you know the the, the mono R. Um, it's it's effectively if you go from pencil to to execution, it's it's over what 10, 12, 13 years old. Um, and there's not many cars that are out there that that after that time frame still look good. I mean, there's the, the nine eleven seemingly just gets better and better and better. Um, but you look back to the, you know the 997 is still a timeless timeless version of the 911 and that's nearly 20 years old um and i think i genuinely think the car has got a you know it's one of those landmark cars i think and that's that, that's not to to blow smoke up uh you know the team's backsides it, it, it genuinely is i think and when you've got people like jeremy clarkson who's seen a few cars in his time saying it's one of the most iconic shapes he's ever seen um, and then, of course, you know, um, let's, you know, I wouldn't say that, 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 that there's car companies that have copied our car in, in certain ways, but I certainly think they've been influenced by certain elements of it. Um, certainly the treatment behind the, uh, the front wheel arch um, is something that you'll see on many, many, many cars now. Um, and actually, our, our, our good friend, uh, 
um, you know, Chris Fenson, who sadly passed away a few years back, who did the, the, the latest version of the Ford GT, was hugely influenced by our car. You see that, again, this, this wide shape at the front that then starts to get thinner towards the back, which makes the rear end of the car so much more aerodynamically efficient, allows more air, airflow onto a rear wing to create downforce, etc. Um, so I wouldn't say that... Um, you know, people copied us. I certainly think that they were influenced by certain elements. And again, that's that's super flattering. And again, I think it's, it's part and parcel of the fact that we've, we've created a landmark car in, in, in the original version. Reminds me, we were contacted um, by one of the design bosses at Nike um, who had his team over from America and they were doing a bit of a tour of some cool things, you know, design museum in London and things like that. Asked if he could come up and have a look around and show his team and we did. It was must have been around 2014, 15 when we'd first moved into where we are now. Um, and there was four of them. We sat there and I kind of talked them through the design process we went through and, and things. It was nice just talking to some other designers from a totally different area. But um, Tom, Tom, his name was, and Tom said, um, he said, since your cars came out, I've not seen one mood board for a for a trainer that didn't have your car on it. Wow! <laughs> so he said we had to come, we had to come and have a look, you know. So uh, he was grateful for showing him around, and uh, yeah, he's become a friend, and we've stayed in touch. So, yeah. Now, ordinarily at this point in the show, I'd welcome an unexpected guest and let Ian and Neil have a couple of guesses as to who they think it might be. But this week. I think it might well be the most obvious thing in the world to them, as I have two guests on. Okay, go on then. Let's hear it. Who do you, who do you reckon it's going to be? Well, there was only five of us at the time. Three <laughs> designers and two engineers, and we're talking about design. So let me have a wild stab in the dark. Murray and Guy. <laughs> Neil, any, any advice? Um, Guy and Murray. <laughs> you see, this is why I didn't bother. Please welcome <laughs> BAC senior designers and very much day oneers of Briggs Automotive Company, Guy Harvey and Murray Adams. Hi, everyone. Hello. All right, boys. Hi, Hi fellas. How are we Good doing? Morning. Good morning, guys. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, where, as luck would have it, we're talking all things design today. Both of you have quite a story to tell when it comes to BAC, but I'll start with Guy. You've obviously known Ian and Neil long before they are the responsible adults they are today, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, that always makes me smile when you say responsible adults. Um, yeah, I've known, I mean, yeah, since uh, we, we, Ian and I met in 1986 at uh, Coventry University, and uh, which was then Lanchester Polytechnic. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a fair old chunk of time already passed there. And uh, I think I first met Neil when, when he came out to visit us, Ian and I had graduated and we were working in uh, Florida designing boats and various other watercraft and, uh, and Neil came out to visit. And Murray, meanwhile, was the first ever employee of BSA, obviously now the longest serving. Murray, what was it like for you, you know, fresh out of university, going to designing, you know, a dream, really, designing a supercar, largely with a blank sheet of paper? I mean, it was a bit of a baptism of fire, I'd say, um, you know, uh, being involved in such a project. It was a bit more like a kind of a student project in a way. Um, and so I guess in some respects, it, it, it wasn't such a difference because I just finished my master's course. Um, when I joined Ian, and, and I think Ian will back me up on this, it was very much a um, few notes on a piece of paper, really. I mean, it, I think you guys had had the thought of a single-seater car for maybe what, 10 years before, perhaps. Yeah. But um, it was very sketchy, really, in terms of um, what it might be. And we didn't even know at that stage that we were actually going to physically build a car. It was 
it was that early on in um, in proceedings. But I mean, it's every every designer's dream to to, to design a a mid-engine car. You know, that's um, it's kind of flexibility you couldn't really have dreamed of. So it was it was pretty special to to work on your first job straight out of out of uni. That's why you were keen as mustard, mate, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, I, I wrote. A, I was, as I say, I was scrambling around trying to find a job, and um, you got to put in, so, you know, a lot of hard yards. You know, sending out portfolios and stuff, and everything's really formal. And uh, I got this message saying um, someone might might be might be keen, and um, so I just I just entitled the email "Keen as mustard," and well, fortunately, it seemed to do the do the job. Yeah, I remember. I remember again that it made me chuckle. And then we talked on the phone, and as Murray said, it wasn't a hundred percent clear how far the project was going to go. Neil and I just knew that we'd been talking about it for so long that if we if we didn't just start it, it, it had no chance of actually happening. So we thought we'll start it, and we'll come to a certain point, and then we'll make some decisions, and we'll go to the next point. It'll take on a life of its own. Um, yeah, and, and Murray said wrote this mail um, with the subject line "Keen as mustard." So he had a little chuckle at that. Talked to him. I remember seeing you work actually when I kept, when I had a look around. Um, but if you remember, Tom, he'd done yeah. a, a really insect-like off-roader. Yeah. So he was yeah. the first guy I contacted. And then I bumped into him uh, by chance at Frankfurt Airport. And he was on his way to, to Wolfsburg, I think, or Berlin. He was going to to go and start a job yeah. for um, VW for Volkswagen. Well, I think he still is, isn't he? Uh, he's Land Rover now. Oh, okay. Spent about a decade at, at uh, VW. Yeah. yeah. And he said, but a friend of mine, Murray, you know, he's 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 a great designer, and and so um, I asked I asked him to get in touch. Yeah, and that's how that's how all that came about. But uh, yeah, no, Murray sat next to me. I mean, we we had a what probably a four or five meter long desk, and we just sat shoulder to shoulder yeah. um, and got cracking. So at the time Murray joined, was there there was just absolutely nothing there. You just you started the sketches like immediately, all between you you four, I guess. Well, the first thing was a little bit of uh, benchmarking, to be honest. Um, yeah, those th- those those graphs still exist, obviously. Yeah, that's it. Because I remember we um, we benchmarked all the competition, so we plotted uh, one of the one of the first things we plotted was performance against price. I think it was the the, the top gear lap time, wasn't it? Actually, yes. and that was one of the the nice um, nice stories because we we found like a genuine. Um, place in the market that wasn't occupied, whereby we could we could beat or at least compete with um, you know your supercar and hypercars that were kind of coming on stream around then, and um, and we could beat them on price. Now we ended up more expensive than we thought um, we were maybe initially going to be, but in terms of performance wise, um, I think we ended up quicker, didn't we? Than we then we'd even benchmarked, yeah. which was which was nice. We we, we actually originally targeted, uh, I think it was a one six, a high one sixteen, because uh, because no one had got in the sixteens. Uh, I think the seventeens had just been penetrated at that time. So we said we've got to offer you know better performance than anyone, uh, and and at a price point of around a hundred grand, I think it was. And then the the when we actually went there. Um, in July 2013, and, and and did the lap. We did obviously did a 114.3, so we were nearly three seconds quicker than we than we targeted. Um, and and famously, you'll you'll hear Jeremy Clarkson say that the car was 103 grand, so we were three grand over the 
over the budget and then obviously the analogy with 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 all of the great designed things and 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 the desire to own such a, an incredible car but i think it was what was what was great for me at that time was was um i was sat in the uk um with with uh, an engineer called joel uh, who i'd worked with a, a race car team that i'd raced for uh, that sadly uh sadly went under so he was surplus to requirements and he needed a job so he and i were were coming up with you know chassis layouts and suspension and stuff and then handing that over to to Ian and Murray. So as as the hard points were firming up in parallel, Murray and Ian were doing all the research and, and product positioning and of course the mood boards, which we've spoken about. Uh, and 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 there was no pressure, um, which is a nice a nice position to be in. Um I can't remember that, what that feels like. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and that was that was nice because in the background you had each week, new things were were were, were taking shape, and then the guys were, were slowly but surely starting to get this, uh, this these influences. That took about three months, I think, didn't it? All the kind of influences and mood boards and stuff before any sketches started happening. How many iterations of mono were you sketched out? You know, how long did it take before you actually got to this final product? I guess. Oh, there are. I think there must be thousands. Yeah. I mean, it was about between between like the, the the benchmarking and product positioning and starting a clay model was about six seven months. I think it would have been summer twenty eighteen when we started the clay. I mean, in terms of the the architecture of the car, if you like, it it, it was pretty quick because uh, Ian had always wanted this um, kind of almost more like a motorbike. Um, even when I, from the day I'd started, we were talking about a, a four-wheeled motorbike. So that's like an enclosed front and exposed at the rear, very much sort of homage to the mechanicals. Um, and so with that in mind, you know, you've got to, you've got to be able to get into the, the center of the car. So you have to um, nip it at the waist and then you've got your side pods obviously have to have airflow. So it, you know, funnily enough, it, it, that that aspect of it came together very quickly. It was, um, it, it, and that was that was what was so sort of reassuring about it in a way. It looked quite unique, but it was fundamentally, you know, the, the basis was was there quite early on, which is usually a sign of a good idea. Yeah, there was a there was a sketch Murray did um, <clears throat> a quite early one directly from the rear, but slightly up. Um, and it had uh, it had the bodywork at the front, and it literally had nothing at the rear. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, um, uh, Neil and I, our dad, made us skateboards uh, when skateboards first came out, and he made them out of old roller skates. And he made it; it looked almost like a tennis racket. It was it was wide and broad at the front, where because at the time people were skateboarding, they would kind of their the, the rear foot would be parallel to the direction of travel, and then you'd kind of pump yourself along, and you'd put your front wheel, your front foot kind of diagonally across. So my dad, you know, also being a, a natural born designer kind of thing, he, he had this wide front, and then it narrowed down to the rear, and you and you saw the rear wheels. And I've often wondered if that's where where that aesthetic kind of was planted. I'm not sure, but Murray did that sketch and I liked it straight away. And I think that that definitely became um, like the, the blueprint in a way. And I think all the work we did in the clay model was about then balancing that. You, you, you do run the danger of having a slightly front heavy looking form. Um, and obviously you have to by law cover the rear wheels and you have to put your lights in the right place at the right height and the right distance from the edge. And we started to create elements at the rear. And so, um, 
and getting it all in balance. Uh, there was still plenty to do for the clay model, but uh, that was probably the most influential image that I would say. We still have that clay model actually at BAC today. It's quite an interesting story what you guys did with that. I believe you tried to create a time-lapse video and something went sort of wrong at one point, I guess. <laughs> Do you well, mean the, the bit where we tried to, to to jump, everybody jump simultaneously? <laughs> I do. Uh, yes. Tell me about that. You, you can well, tell that story, Guy. It was your yeah, idea. <laughs> it was my idea. And we did try it quite a lot. And I think when we actually got it right, uh, because the time-lapse was running uh, one frame every minute, so... I think somebody had a stopwatch and we knew when the shot was going because a light would flash. Um, and it was literally, I think one of us was doing the countdown uh, and then everybody did a real good jump. <laughs> and, uh, one minute later, the next frame shot shows, I think three of us rubbing our heads because the, the, <laughs> the, the roof of the garage was so low. It was a right old clout that I took anyway. We hadn't factored for the low ceiling. No, <laughs> we to, 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 to set the scene, this was a uh, this was basically a storage unit in an underground car park underneath uh, the the building that Ian and and, and um, Murray used to sit in. And I remember I, I visited and and I'd heard about this uh, styling clay studio, and I'm thinking to myself, "Oh, this all sounds all sounds very OEM and very professional." And I remember I think Ian picked me up from the airport. I came over for the weekend to to check it out and uh, down we came, we kind of winded down this kind of down ramp for an underground car park. And then halfway down where you'd expect to find like the cleaners room or a, or a plant room, we bared left into this room that, that you know, even for someone my height was, 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 was pretty low ceiling. Uh, and there we had in amongst all these various bits of, 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 of failed motorbike projects and, and, and crashed bits of off people's front ends of Lotus Elysees. Uh, canoes and uh, tennis rackets and all sorts of things that, that that guy had been tinkering with over the years. On this table was. Yeah, I, uh, actually, I only got that. <laughs> only got that canoe back recently. Actually, that's uh, it's been there for donkey's years. I think. But yeah, there was there was there was this clay model, and, and I'd um, as we touched upon earlier. You know, this is part of a process that that when you're working with major OEMs, you you very rarely get to see in the the design studio. Um, uh, full-size clay models I'd, I'd seen but i'd never seen model scale uh stuff and uh and to see the lads really developing it and and, and so on was 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 really good actually but there was uh there was always this kind of fun element to it i think as well which was that you know, and i think that was important um that uh that it was always you know that it was always fun um but the the video uh, we should we should show that at some point because it's uh, it's great to see it actually i remember murray holding up the the let's go. Uh, I always used to joke with him that he was sponsored by Superdry at the time, because <laughs> because every 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 kind of he used to wear these like three different layers of tops um, with his with his trousers all the time. I yeah, um, and he and his hairline slightly different as well. Um, but yeah, he started, it's, it says let's go on this thing, and it's it's really good actually. Yeah. We should we should get that up there. It was actually it was actually Alex Knauk's idea. Um, and for everyone else's benefit, Alex Knauk later became a very good friend at the time and later became a mono owner, started the mono owners club. He's the president of that as well now. So very active, always in the project. And he was the one, I mean, we, we were, a we were a little bit kind of, we had so much on our plate. Neil and I were trying to, you know, make ends meet. We had no projects really, or we had, we had two actually that we could write bills, uh, to companies for, but the rest of us, the rest of the time we couldn't. And so we're trying to make ends meet and we had a load of stuff on our plate and. 
and Alex said, "You need to make a record of it. You need you need to photograph it." I just don't have the don't have the brain, don't have the bandwidth for it, mate. Um, and he said, "I'll do it." And he came down with his camera, with his tripod. He set it all up. He said, "It's all ready to go. All you do is you press here, you know." And then it, and he did. He took a picture every every minute for six weeks, um, and thank God he did because yeah, we've got a great movie of that. We've got some funny memories, um, and like the guys said. It looked kind of okay on the camera because we cleared everything away that's in the field of view, but behind the camera was just just piles of piles of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, anyway, I remember um, just as we we're starting off uh, that that clay model, and I was I was going to make a, a scale uh, helmet out yeah. of foam because the, the helmet's like an integral part of the overall look of the car. So I thought, well, we've got to have got to have the driver's helmet. So. I'm looking in the garage through boxes of this absolute mess that's on one side of the room and uh, desperately trying to find like a piece of foam. So I'm rooting through this box. And if there isn't like a plastic um, injection molded quarter, quarter, quarter scale, David Coulthard F1 helmet that um, it was Mark Etal, I think, had done a project. One of our yes. colleagues in the, stu- in the, in the studio had, um, had done this project with a, it was like a sort of like a rain, like Mac inside this um, quarter scale helmet. And, and I'm, I remember measuring it and it's like, bloody hell, this is, this is <laughs> exactly what I was going to shave at a phone. Um, so it was a nice little uh, Brucey bonus that was the start of the, the clay model. The initial thing is trying to make a form. The hardest part is actually trying to trying to create a form that everybody's happy with that proportionally works. Um, and I think we 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 spent a lot of time, a lot of late nights fiddling around, modifying things, and having a look at it, and then having a meeting and discussing that maybe uh, that the, the, the spine or some areas were too high. And 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 the other problem with doing a quarter scale model is, and I'll remember this very vividly now, the first time we ever had a finished car on the floor in front of us. Because we didn't really know what to expect. I mean, I've jumped a little bit there. There's a lot. There's a lot more to get into that point. But the first time you see it, it's it, it's trying to interpret a scale model as a full size vehicle is is something that is it, it does play with your mind a little bit because you're never going to have the same perspective on something that's sitting in front of you. Um, it just simply doesn't happen. I think that's why perspectives are, that why sizes are modified on model cars anyway, just to make them look right, even though they're probably not exactly scaled correctly um so yeah there's a there's a i mean you can smooth down the clay afterwards you can put we put dynock on various little pieces to see what they look like with paint on because clay inherently is it's a color that we that is used in the industry which is brown and um and and actually you know it, it does work quite well it does it's very good uh, there's a lot of light travel in, in it it's quite quite good sh- uh, shine and, and and shadow so it is not about not as bad a material as you'd expect if you just look at the color of it. Uh, but to heat it up, we used we made our own oven. Even um, I think we had like a wooden box with some heat shield in it and a couple of old-fashioned light bulbs. Which, if you if you if you if you build it correctly, you can get to exactly the temperature you want. If you go a bit too far, it turns into something well stratospherically hot. Mm-hmm. So you're going to get you you're going to get. Well, I think we had a lot of blisters, didn't we? Uh, actually oh, yeah. quite a lot of blisters from too much heat uh, so you've got to be a bit careful with your thumbs and fingers when you're applying it and one of the other issues is anybody working on a clay model uh, is going to have 
a clay-infused carpet at home. Uh, <laughs> their car is going to be full of clay. They're always going to smell of clay. They never get it out from the fingernails. It's a bit of a dirty job. But, the, but what you get in the end is obviously, it's, it's such a perfectly perfect material to modify. I mean, there are, so, there are now VR uh, automotive design systems where you can actually manipulate surfaces with your hands in a VR environment. And, and I still think there's a lot to be said for the old school method. Of course, it's going to get overtaken at some point, but but actually tangibly feeling something and being able to, you know, modify it and, and then stand back and look at it, it's uh, it's going to be a tough one to beat, I think. Personally. It's still uh, it's still industry standard despite the, the modern tools. And, and 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 just to explain, I mean, you do one side and you get it to look as good as you could as you could. And, and you'd say, right, okay, that looks about as good as we think we can make it right now. Let's go to the other side and try and make yeah. it look better. So you don't lose yes. because it's very easy to modify. A guy took, you know, said like grating cheese. It's very much like that. You can, if you imagine you can add melted cheese with your, with your thumb and build it up and you can scrape it away just like you can uh, with cheese. And so, but, you, but you're, you're, yeah, it's a good point you make there, obviously about you've got, you've saved your model on one side. And then if yeah. you can't improve it, you don't delete the side yes, that you've exactly. already created. And in parallel, um, we're taking pictures of it and Murray's doing Photoshop because everything's brown. And we know that the final car, we, you know, we've, we'd already come to this concept in our sketches where the lower body is black carbon and the, and the, and the upper body is, is car colour. Um, and so Murray's kind of doing Photoshop based on the clay. So you're constantly going around this loop of uh, does this 3D object now, is it starting to represent the vision that we've got in the sketches? Because we love the sketches. We, we know we can all close our eyes and kind of see this finished car, but now we have to actually create it in three dimensions. And so you're going around this loop all the time, left, right, left, right, left, right, uh, pictures, Photoshop, um, images on the wall. Okay, they, they're, they're now the new reference, not the original sketches, and you just keep going and going and going. I think I think what's, what's per, a couple of things for me... Um, the, there's a couple of breakthrough moments uh, on two key major elements with the car, one of which is the sort of nostrils that we call them now, which is where the dampers are exposed. And I remember um, a phone call from Ian saying, oh, I've had this great idea. Um, it sounded a bit like Michael Caine in, uh, in the Italian job. but um, And it was, uh, it was to try and create the, the, the look of a, of a superbike where you can see the forks protruding through the through the fairing was uh, was so you could see the dampers and of course the dampers are a major element in terms of how the car performs and, and a thing of beauty as well um so we completely repackaged the dampers from where we originally had them uh to where where we now famously have them uh and and, and we'd made a real nice design feature and i remember the first time i arrived to see the clay um and without them uh, I felt the car looked, uh, I think we all did, it felt like it had too much too much mass at the front of the car. And so the next time I visited Stuttgart and uh, the guys had, had, had somehow managed to, you know, bear in mind these spaces are, are super, super small. So to do it with self-made tools was, was, was a success in itself, but they'd managed to somehow scrape away and make this space for the dampers and i think as soon as you saw it it was like wow that's that, that's the that's a, an incremental step forward that will that will improve it um, and i think it's one way in which 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 the, which the engineers work with the designers to try and 
um, achieve the vision that they've got, um, but at the same time making sure that it, that it's the right thing for the car and obviously bringing the dampers out of the airflow, using a pushrod suspension, mounting them together um, on the vehicle centre line is, is is for all the right reasons. Oh, and, and of course it, eases, it eases the um, the ergonomics of actually changing damper settings and spring rates as well, which is quite a big uh, big thing I think as well. Yeah, well, that was a, that was a very good point because because Ian had a had an exige at the time with adjustable dampers, and he kept saying, you know, I have I've never get, adjusted them. <laughs> I, I have to roll on the floor, put it on full lock, get my arm inside, and it's not something that you you know that, that you can do. This needs to be something that's that, that's super easy to do. So that was a, that was a nice little step change, and and, and I'd say definitely something that's. Uh, that's part of the of the dna of the car and then the other one was was the roll hoop um and to be you know creating this this lovely nice um first of all safety uh, critical shape uh, around the driver was important from a safety perspective but also one that that complemented the look of the car and, and didn't make it look like it was too much of a, a pyramid above the driver's head of course, to do that you need to achieve what's called a 1d bend which basically is the the diameter of the tube uh, the, the 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 radius is a is a is a very 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 tight bend, and there's only certain material that will do it. You need specialised tooling, um, and that was almost a crusade from my point. It probably took us three months, and then at the point when I'd said, I got, I remember getting an email through saying we could do it, and we were out in Stuttgart having a bite to eat, and it was like who's up for who's up for going back to the studio, and then it was like. Ian and Guy and Murray, and then next minute it was three in the morning, and we they were all scraping clay off the car and. It was, you know, it was it was beyond a job. It was a, it was a hobby and a passion, and I think that's that's a value that's that 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 has, you know, existed today, and it's something that runs throughout throughout the company. Actually, you know, we have, we have our fun, as you can tell, but we're also you know very serious about what we do as well. At which point, when we talk about roll hoop, it wouldn't be uh, complete without the story of um, of the weekend when we were getting all the ergonomics because we had to. As Neil said, we, we the, the, there was some motorsport regulations which which we didn't have to follow. We followed them because it seemed like a sensible thing to do. And one of them is that if you draw a line from the top of the roll hoop past the driver's head to the front hoop, which is in front of the steering wheel, you had to have a certain clearance. And what we wanted to do was in the first prototype chassis, we were getting everybody to sit in it, put a helmet on, uh, measure it, you know, straight line. In practical terms, make sure, you know, where's your eye line? How, how do you feel? Um, there's regulations about when you look to the left and right, you've got to have 180 degrees. So the bodywork couldn't be too high at the side. So we've mocked that up as well with rulers. And Neil had come over with Joel. Joel had brought his computer with him. And for a few days, we were all working together. And on this particular evening, it was like it was a Saturday evening. We were, you know, we had planned to go out for the evening and we spent all Saturday. And we found we'd got a position where everyone was comfortable, an eye line, everyone was right, everyone had the right clearance. So we'd all been putting these this, this helmet on and off all day. Actually, not and, really. And just and just towards the end of the day, I got a I got a, a call from um, my partner Yasna um, that the someone from the kindergarten had been on and said that the kids have all got fleas, um, and that all the parent all the parents had to use flea shampoo to make was sure it they didn't have it, it was as head well. Lice. Head yeah, lice. Sorry, yeah. head lice. Yeah. yeah, is that different to fleas? Yeah. Is it okay? Sorry, head lice. Head lice. They taste so, different, I find. <laughs> so I, uh, as I broke the news to the lads, we're not going out tonight, lads. We're all, we're all having our life shampoo. <laughs> we all sat here at my place. We watched a movie, I remember, and just drank beer. Um, but everyone, you had, all, to leave the, you had to leave the shampoo on your hair for like an hour or two before you yeah. could rinse it off. We look, we look like we were in a gangster movie, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. 
the, only, the only positive was is that we all got head massages off Ian's partner, Yasner, who just yeah. stood there just massaging this stuff into our hair while we drank a gin and tonic. <laughs> <laughs> So what was the process from the clay and then to the final car? And how did that feel when that actually all came together and you actually were able to show that off? So, so as we've gone back and two and back and two, and eventually, you know, you get to the point we've, we've, we've done the Photoshop renderings. We're happy with the, with the 3D form. We had some things like the rear wing, which were made out of other materials because it was so thin, they just wouldn't support themselves in clay. And eventually you get to the point where you say, okay, that's it. You know, and I remember... Um, I remember one one important point was we had we we did we did uh, renderings from the from the clay, and we got all of our uh, a lot of colleagues over. We had some friends from the UK, um, and we all got them all in a room because they knew what we'd set out to achieve. Um, and we said before we go to the next stage because the next stage is where it becomes a you know becomes a real car. Um, do you all feel like we've achieved what we set out to achieve? Got really good response. And so the next step was um, was to scan the car. You, you, you scan the car, you get 3D data, and now you're into the computer world. Now you start to, to, to create. And I think Guy um, can explain. I mean, you know, with splines and cross-sections, you start to take that what's effectively a cloud of points and turn it into a, into a finished car. Um, and Guy and I were the that, – that was probably the first time we'd really done something as, as serious as that with Alias, I think, Guy, yeah? Yeah, I mean, of course. Uh- I mean, we had, if I remember rightly, it was, it was, it, well, it was actually quite good. It was quite good data that we got, wasn't it, from the scan, like a network, network data that we could literally overlay on the parts that we had already uh, actually imported or created, as far as you know, the ancillaries, the engine, the chassis, and various other things. So yeah, they were, I mean, I, I do vaguely remember some areas where we had to do some manipulation, and I think we discussed about just some of the design changes that we were now going to move into the CAD process to actually uh implement those um so i think i mean obviously if you look at the clay now there are a lot of differences but there yeah, but, but, it, but but it is you know what it is yes. you know what it is and and, and we i think i think uh, we had to manipulate various things that it might you know from maybe the cockpit length to 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 heights of, of spines and various things like that and and um once you're in CAD, you know where your headlight heights need to be, and and all. Then you get to the nitty gritty of you know the stipulation behind what rules have we got to follow to make this car street legal, and it is uh, a bit of a um, a bit of a rabbit warren of of information that you have yeah. to be aware of. Well, I think the biggest change, and Murray can Murray can mention this. I mean, I, I could put him on the spot and say what was the biggest change from the clay model to the real car. Uh, well, I know for a start that the car was a hundred mil longer at the front uh, than the clay because we literally didn't have space for the headlights to go in front of the in front of the front wheels. So I don't know if uh, I'm presuming yeah, it's that. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, the, the 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 nose of the car was extended, wasn't it? I think if you look at the clay model now, it looks slightly dumpy. Yeah, at the front, snub, snub, yeah. snub, snub, slightly snub, snub nose. There's, there's yeah. more plan shape to the front, and I think that that helped us get more space for the lights. Um, but I remember Murray proposing that and taking the kind of the point data at the front and stretching it forward and, you know, um, 
it, it was slightly scary because we felt we had a clay model that we were happy with. And here we were in 3D, we're making dip, we're making changes to it. Um, and we never had the luxury of going to a, a full-size clay. I mean, the next stage for a, for a big OEM would be once you've got that data, then you go and machine a full-size clay, and then you go through the whole process again, fine-tuning. We, we, we didn't have that luxury. We were going straight from data into, into tool. So it was it was slightly scary, that, but... Um, Knowing a little bit about the process, and I'd been I'd, I'd been through it particularly on, on on other projects that we'd worked on, um, um, was that you go from a, as Ian said a, a, a clay model uh, to a full size car, and and then everyone stands back and, and looks at it in a nice courtyard and in a kind of space, you know, to to, to understand what it, this futuristic thing is going to look like in in reality. And we were going from a clay model to to our our, our tools that we'd invested heavily in and. You know, it was, it was a big deal because if we'd got them wrong, then we'd have to, you know, start again, kind of thing. And I, I specifically remember me and Ian saying, "Look, there's no, there's, there's just no other way." I mean, we'd, we, you know, you've got to remember this is all self-funded at this at this moment in time, and um, even the even the tooling for the uh, for the bodywork, which was, you know, still is a lot of money. Uh, we'd, we'd managed to scrape that together, um, so there was just no way that we could afford to to spend hundreds of thousands on a full-size clay. And into this, just this area of the car that's really, really worrying us um, because there's all these different surfaces that all come together. Um, and now you look at it on the car and you think, you know, it's just like all good design. It looks so obvious and so so well resolved. Um, so um, we, we managed to, again, find some money down the back of my sofa, I think it was. And we got this part that was made that was about this big that represented... Um, if you look at where the, the main body comes comes down and meets the back of the arch, um, there's, 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 there's the edge of the main, upper main body and then there's, the, there's this kind of intersection of parts and we managed to make this part, right? Uh, and then Ian and Guy managed to mock it all up in a courtyard at exactly the right height. And this was actually the parking, the parking lot outside of the design studio. And so we, we basically mocked, well, they mocked up this viewing gallery that didn't really have any of the car. It just had this, this small bit and they were all walking around it and having a look at it. And I think here you got Steve Matten over, who's a good mate from, right. from Mercedes at the time. And they're just wandering around it. They're like, yeah, we feel, we feel all right now. And, and that was the only bit. I mean, that's, that's a bit like asking an artist to think of this picture, but he's only going to paint like this bit. And then he's going to sign off on the whole picture uh, and yeah. show it to the world and heavily invest into it. And, and, you know, it's things like that, really, that, that are, I mean, there's a confidence in what you're doing. There's a little bit of naivety, but, but I think there's a there's self-belief, which I think is, is the underlying core value that we all had in those days and we all still do have. And it's something that we breed into everyone in the company as well. So it was a, it was a, a really interesting turn point for me. And then from that point, it was, right, we're going to we'll start engineering the bodywork. Um, which is when when Ian and Guy and Murray all started to turn into overdrive then and started to create you know this this these panels that would all come together how they were going to be broken you know how the tooling direction was all going to work and of course that was that was again this this piece of wizardry that that only only those guys are capable of. Speaking of what these guys are capable of, I hear that you also managed to create your own language at one point. Right. So in yeah, you know. <laughs> that, that one so yeah i mean i've been, I've been working there for for a few months already and um i've been showing showing guy and ian my work whatever and occasionally you know they'd, they'd be you know very complimentary about it and stuff but occasionally they'd say you know that's quite charlton 
and uh, I was trying to work it out for myself, like what this Charlton meant. I was thinking it, well, it must be some kind of like rhyme and slang or some, some kind of association. So it's like thinking Charlton Athletic. What's that? Pathetic? I don't understand. <laughs> Um, that's a good is one. Like, is it like Bobby, Bobby Charlton, Bobby, Bobby? Like, is that what does that mean? Is that is that good? <laughs> so I'm like, well, eventually plucked up the cars to say, like, guys, what's with this? What's with this Charlton? What does it mean? And they're like, like, look at me, like I'm an absolute idiot <laughs> in unison, saying Charlton, Charlton Heston, interesting. <laughs> It doesn't even and then, rhyme. And then instantly it's forgave closer, It's, clo- it's close enough. Wondering what it might be. <laughs> Very good. Very good. It, it, is, it is interesting though, Stuart, that because there was there's quite a bit of terminology. Um, another one was rapid um, that me and Ian uh, used to use quite a lot. Um, I, was, I went travelling uh, into railing when I was about 21 back in the early 90s when you could travel around Europe for like 100 quid on the, on this ticket and I met this this ever so far back posh lad uh, and I was talking about Ian's mini uh, that he, he, he'd he done uh, whilst he was at Coventry University and uh, and he just came out with this phrase that you know he's, he's, he's almost royalty this kid and he said oh rapid uh, and it was something that stuck and so when when something is very cool uh, cool wasn't really a word that we used 30 years ago you know it's uh, it's 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 far more recent so we used to say something was was rapid um and that 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 took a bit of getting used to um as did all the various different names that we used to dream up for guy um which was a fu- which was a function of of in german uh, to call someone uh, a guy is like we, we call something you'd never be called bloke smith uh, for example. And so Guy's name to them just didn't really make any sense. Um, so they came up to us one day and said, uh, is, is his name really Guy? And we're like, um, uh, yeah. And they're like, well, it doesn't make any sense. They must mean it's Gary. So so, so for a long time, everyone in the studio used to call Guy Gary. Um, and then just from there, the, the names of, of, of what rhymes with Gary and Barry and Harry um, and then, of course, there's things that, that 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 go with Gary, like Gary Baldy, and guys forever had a receding hairline. So we thought, well, that fits. So it was Gary Baldy, uh, and 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 then it's just and, and what's amazing is is that even to this day, if it's me or Ian and Murray to a certain extent, a few of our other friends, we can literally call Guy anything, Gary, Barry, Harry, uh, anything, and he'll go what, and he'll and he'll respond <laughs> and he'll respond to it. So it's kind of BAC I, I, culture. I, I literally got an e- a, 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 a mail, I think it was last week, with somebody saying, thanks, Gary. Uh, <laughs> uh, so Italian, uh, thought my name was Gary the whole time. Uh, so, yeah, which I didn't realise. But uh, When we first came to Germany, we were at um, Mascotec, and uh, they had a day a week when you wore your team shirt. So you didn't have to wear your shirt and tie like normal in this drawing office. You wore uh, you wore a T-shirt with EDAG on the front, you know, Team EDAG or something, and it had your name on the back. And um, yeah. everyone had to fill in their name. So guy, you know, guy Harvey filled his in, and I snuck into the office and crossed it out and put Gary Baldy. So, so, <laughs> That's right. So so every team yeah. day, guy guy's walking around with Gary Baldy on his back, and of course, everyone in the company then just they just wouldn't have it that his name's really Guy. He was Gary, you know, and he's like, oh yeah, he doesn't like the name Gary, so call I him Guy. I, he likes the name Guy. I think I gave up at some point. Yeah. <laughs> 
So good. we sort of uh, remember we said we're going to talk about design in this podcast. We've gone off. Got a question from uh, from social media for Murray and Guy. It's from 88 Nichols. And he says to both of you, Murray, we'll start with you. What are you most proud of about the design of the BAC Mono? Uh, well, well, just the just the, the compliments that it gets. Um, I think something that's been lost in car design, certainly like the last 15, 20 years, is 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 just making something that that um, is kind of harmonious and and I think you know beautiful. Hopefully, um, I think a lot of cars have gone down like a very aggressive route, and they sort of. Um, confuse sportiness, purposefulness with aggressiveness. And um, I've never really thought that that should be the case. I think if you look at a lot of, um, you know, some of the famous cars from the 60s and 70s, um, it's the proportions that make it a great looking purposeful car. And, um, and I think that's probably what I'm proudest of, that the proportions are good, that it's it's not full of decoration. It's it's uh it's just got that kind of just just rightness at least it has to me you know you don't know you know hopefully other people feel the same way but um from the feedback we got it you know it seems like that's the case and hopefully it will stand the test of time i think i think you i think it does because firstly i think whenever whenever i look at one i think we created that because before we created a car completely we hadn't if you know what i mean we didn't know what was involved so um, actually looking at it and going, you know what? We did ev- literally everything between us. We've been involved in s- multiple parts of that vehicle. And I see them now at the moment because I'm in the office and in, 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 and in various, various areas where the cars are. Uh, and, and I see them every day. And I have seen them every day, probably, you know, for a decade. Um, and I never actually not, don't, don't look at them. I, walk through, I, I can't walk through any area without having a look from a different angle and I'm still taking photos. I took some photos yesterday and I think, I don't, what, why am I taking all these photos? But I just, oh, that's, a good, that's a good view, I'll take that. So yeah, I think it's a good point. I think we've created something that, was, that is certainly not tiring. And in, and in, create, in, in our process of, uh, of creating the Mono R as well, uh, I think we've taken it to, to another level um, and it hasn't taken away from the original car at all. It is completely different but of the, of the same sort of DNA and they and they're both, they're both great in different ways, you know, it's uh, so, yeah, I think I'm, I'm not growing tired of it. And it's a good point you make Murray that it, it stood the test of time amazingly well. There's a, there's a great photo from a, from an early uh, press shoot. And I think it might've been a car magazine or, or maybe auto car. And uh, it's a, it's a baby in a pram or, or I guess it's a toddler in a pram um at a zebra crossing and, and mono's just there um in, in front of the in front of the pram and the reaction from the kid is is like it's such an instinctive thing you know like uh, god, god knows how young the kid was but he knew that he was looking at something which was completely you know otherworldly compared to you know what normal road i've got a better one than that <laughs> because <laughs> uh, I was driving into a little village once in Wales so doing a little test drive and now when you when you change down there's an air actuated gear changer and it just sounds really unique it's got it's got a, a real sort of like a wow. like somebody cocking a weapon or something but it's it's an amazing sound and I'm just dropping through the gears into a 30 zone and there's a guy walking his dog on the other side of the road in the opposite direction to me 
And as I as I approached, driving very slowly, obviously, as I always do, and um, the, the guy and the dog simultaneously looked around to see what the, what the noise was. And the dog had a massive, like literally a log in its mouth um, and yeah. quite a big stick anyway. Uh, and, the, and they both looked at me as I drove past and the dog then proceeded to drop its stick <laughs> I've never seen before. And they both followed me and I looked at them. It was all very slow motion. And I just thought that is quite bizarre. I'm pretty sure that an animal has been affected by this kind of like form. You know, it might have been that I sit too low in the car. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Murray, Guy, thank you so, so much for joining us. It's been a lot of fun, probably too much fun for something as uh, serious as this. But uh... I didn't realise it was meant to be serious. I'm sorry. No one said that. <laughs> Start again. Yeah. Cheers, gentlemen. All the best. Yeah, cheers. thanks. Cheers. Bye. And that's it. That's episode three in the bag. Uh, any thoughts, gents? Enjoy that. It's great. It's great to. Uh, I, I hope we didn't get too far off track with stories of what we call guy and you know halls of residences and all the rest of it. But now it was uh, good to remember it all. I think. I think we've said many times that reflection is a great thing, isn't it? Um, I don't know why, but maybe it's brought it more to life for me. You know, uh, with those guys because they're at the coal face with us. Um, you know, sharing memories from 13, 14 years ago and, and, and crikey, even more like 30, 35 years ago with, in the case of Guy. Um, no, it's been, it's been really good. It's been really good, actually. And I, I just hope everyone enjoys it as, as much as the other ones. For sure. So next time on the BAC podcast is The Performance, where we look back at some of Mono's remarkable lap records and phenomenal performance achievements around the world, perhaps with those who made it happen from behind the wheel. A little guest clue for you boys there. <laughs> Thank you for listening, as always, and we'll see you next time. Yeah.